What's up, everybody? Welcome back to TMT Time. I'm your host, Evan Rothstein, along with my co-host for our Startup Sutra series, Josh Eisbart. Today, we are welcoming in the CEO and founder of a very well-known Denver-based company called Ibotta. And of course, we're talking about Brian Leach. Brian, welcome into the podcast. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you giving us a bit of time, given I know how busy you are, a lot of Ibotta in the news. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself for those of them that don't know you? Sure. I'm Brian Leach. I've lived in Denver for the last 15 years. I used to be a lawyer, quit practicing law after about four and a half years and started Ibotta. It's my first venture as an entrepreneur. Started in 2011. I was flying back from a conference for my law job and I saw someone taking a picture of her receipt using her mobile phone. And I started thinking about all the things you could do if you had access to information about what you bought, hence the word Ibotta. It's a really bad pun, basically, but it turned into a cashback service that has now given away over a billion dollars in cashback rewards to consumers who buy everyday products, bread, milk, eggs, cheese, diapers, beer, you name it, at the grocery store. And now you can shop online, in-store, at a very wide range of places and earn cashback using both our app browser extension. And now increasingly, you can find our content off-platform in lots of different places, but we're the leading rewards cashback company in the U.S., and we have about 750 employees based here, in mostly in Denver. you got to be one of the largest employers in the region at this point. <laughs> Startup <laughs> I don't employers, know if it's right? a, I don't know if that's the case, but we're, we're certainly proud to have started in the basement of a fire station at 18th and Blake, $8 a square foot, and grown to one of the larger you know, high-growth tech companies in the, in the city. That's close to the founding. Every big company gets founded in a garage story. That's very close to that. Well, we were looking for cheap downtown real estate, and we were in a windowless basement with a boiler room and one toilet for 24 employees. Uh, pretty soon, people were leaving to go to the bathroom at Starbucks down you know, three blocks away. We figured probably time to get a better office. Probably time, probably time. Well, Brian, thanks so much for for taking the time to speak with us. Um, you know, in in your world, it seems as if partnerships are are tremendously important, and um, and Walmart is one that that we're all aware of. Um, for for our listeners out there, in terms of uh, you know startups and um, in the world of partnerships. Can you tell us a bit about how you believe that effective partnerships are made and, and, and actually, quite frankly, some of those to stay away from? Yeah, I mean, you're right. First of all, partnerships are the lifeblood of a lot of businesses, certainly a, a B2B business, but also a business like ours where it's an ecosystem. And unless you have Walmart and Kroger and all the other leaders, uh, part of what you're building, it's hard to create the really delightful experiences for the for the savers who you're trying to benefit at the end of the day, who are mutual customers. In terms of how you build those relationships, I'll just give you a story of how the Walmart deal came together. Um, I was invited to participate in something called Business on Bikes, which is a, a really cool sort of podcast, if you will, where you actually ride a bicycle and there's a truck riding in front of you with a camera on a gimbal and you're talking to the CEO of Sam's Club. And this is something that he did as part of his personal brand. And he would just bring in business leaders to talk about how they got started. And at the time, I was invited to go do this because my friend was working for Facebook and helping business leaders build their social media presence and, and develop content. I flew down to Bentonville and 
got to know this gentleman and, and we hit it off. And I came to his town hall, we biked together and we stayed in touch. And eventually he was promoted to become the CEO of, of Walmart US. And when he took that job, we still had this relationship and we maintained a dialogue about ways in which we felt we could really help them with their strategic goals. And really that personal relationship and, and investing in that on an ongoing basis over a five-year period ultimately blossomed into an opportunity to finally work together. But I think trust and personal relationships are the key to building successful partnerships. And then I think just making sure that whatever you commit to, you can deliver on or over-deliver. Uh, and that's that's easily said and hard to do because it's it's also tempting to sign up for more than you can deliver or over-promise. And you want to make sure that you have uh, the goods to deliver on those partnerships because partnerships ultimately are, are reputationally based. So if you can't be referenced by your prior partners and you got a really big problem on your hands, those are things to avoid. Overpromising, not having good references, not listening to your clients and checking in with them quarterly to make sure that they're happy with your service and really asking the right questions to, to draw out of them the things that aren't going as well as they need to. I think just really thinking about what they're gold on and what they're trying to achieve and making sure you're measuring those things and not just the metrics that matter to your business. Those are some high level things I would advise people on. So you've got 750 employees now, at least in the Denver area, Brian, how do you translate this trust that you're talking about and building it with your partners, uh, you know, throughout your team? How do you build that team? How do you get them to build these trust relationships? Because obviously as the CEO and founder, you can't do everything. Um, so how, how do you, how does it translate beyond you? Yeah, it's very challenging. Honestly, I think I, I probably underestimated as a first time entrepreneur, how much the role changes from when you have five people to hundred people to 250 to 750. You know, I think what, what you need to do at this scale is, uh, have very simple mantra you know, or mission. We have a four word mission, make every purchase rewarding. If it's not four words, people won't remember it. And it's like, it doesn't exist. Make every purchase rewarding. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that we do things that deliver rewards to savers and we don't do things that are unrelated to that. For instance, we're not in the data monetization, sell your email address, personal analytics. There are a lot of other industries that we're, we're adjacent to. Those aren't our primary focus. So it helps you rule things in, rule things out. Then you have things like OKRs, objectives and key results that you can use to drive your business and align around certain outcomes that you care about and give people more decision rights and autonomy and how they deliver those outcomes. Those frameworks are not as necessary when you can check in at a standup every day. But at this scale, you need to write things down and document them. You need to be more intentional about having meetings that are purposeful, where you know what the objective is, what the decision is that's coming out of the meeting. You need to be transparent in the context of a larger organization. You can't be as transparent because there's just no time to go into all the details. So, you know, what used to be a more of a, a thing where you could literally report out the blow by blow to the whole company, that happens on a quarterly basis at a town hall. And those are really, really important. I invest a week of time in preparing for a single uh, two or three hour time, town hall. And many CEOs, I think, wouldn't invest that amount of time or think it's worth it. But I think that a five or 10 or 20% better communication at those has got really positive leverage and, and knock on benefits throughout the organization. And even then, it's, it's really hard when organizations develop to a point where they don't, people care about the outcome, but no longer have as much control over it. And if you think about situations where anxiety emerges, it's usually when you care a lot about something, but you don't control it. 
So many people are afraid of turbulence and airplanes for this reason. I don't want to die. I, I like, I value my life, but I have zero control. And I think it leads to that as the organization gets larger. So what you do is you try to create that shared context. So people feel like they have some more information about what's going on and why um, you want them to care and have an ownership mindset, but you're, you're not practically able to give them all control over the levers of you know, what's on the product roadmap or what's happening next. So you have to manage that anxiety in various ways and make sure that the narratives that come out of that anxiety, like, oh, the founder just chases shiny objects and drives us off a cliff. You don't. You need to make sure they understand that it's a very collaborative process, that it's not just the whims of one person, that it's very transparent. And so it's talking up the process so people maintain confidence in how the leadership are making decisions. How are you able to transfer that in this remote environment. I assume I bought it is not in person, you know, like many of us here in town and around the country, frankly. Um, but that type of transparency, that type of messaging to me sounds like it would be more difficult with everybody across the video screen. How have you effectively made that transition in this sort of new economy? It is hard. I mean, I, I like to always acknowledge what's difficult about being an entrepreneur because I think too many people just sort of pretend like they got everything figured out. It's hard, and I'm not sure we have figured it all out. Certain aspects of it are good and better. I mean, we're more efficient with our time. We're not spending as much time in commutes. It's easier to get large groups of people together. Um, that there's also challenges when there's a, a suspicion or a lack of trust. It's harder to repair trust when you're not in the same room. It's harder to get uh, to stop pop by and have serendipitous conversations or or repair uh, misunderstandings when when it has to be very intentional and you have to have a Zoom to get everyone together. It's easier for people to disengage, multitask when they're on Zoom. Um, and ultimately, I can't control if people pay attention to the town hall the way they have to when they're sitting in front of me and there's 500 or 600 people in a single room. It's it's tough. You don't get any feedback as a presenter. I think the the fun of being a CEO for me as an extrovert is the performance. Is the you know I'm a stage actor. I'm a I'm a former debater. I'm a former trial lawyer. I'm a former tour guide. I like that stuff. Um, but you don't get that feedback on Zoom. So you have to learn to look for feedback in other channels. Uh, but that said, I mean I I think overall we're hanging in there. I don't think. Anybody would say we wanted this to be the go forward way that we work together, but um, we, we do have a voluntary return for vaccinated employees to the office. We do have maybe 50 or 100 people in the office max at any given time. Um, so it's a new normal and we're all adjusting to it. Um, Brian, you know, earlier you were talking about partnerships and, and what makes um, effective partnerships and, and how you'd built that trust with um, someone who had, had uh, elevated to become the, the CEO of Walmart. Um, can you tell us a bit in your experience on what makes, uh, what makes a bad partnership and, and how you navigate those? Because I think, you know, for those of us that are entrepreneurs and, and often trying to chase any type of sales opportunity, especially for those that are inexperienced, we often want to we want to think the best in 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 an opportunity when it may not necessarily have the legs. And what are some of the telltale signs that that you've experienced where it's not only is it not worth pursuing, but actually staying away from uh, partnership? Yeah, I think the first thing you have to figure out is how committed is the other organization to the partnership? Is it just one person who's signing up and running with this or do they have the buy-in of their larger organization? Sometimes it's one thing to have it on paper, but if it's not going to be followed through, 
in and not going to be viewed as a strategic priority on the other side you're just you're just spinning cycles and 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 relying on something that won't 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 turn out it depends on the kind of car, contract sometimes you have a an annual subscription revenue and that money is banked and there you go but other times like in our business yeah the partnership is the Walmart partnership but what really matters is how many rewards we deliver to Walmart shoppers and that depends on Walmart's buy-in how well they market the program how well they implement it in their user experience so the contract is worth nothing unless we do our job and execute together really well so you have to look beyond the language of the contract to the level of organizational buy-in and if you don't see that then that can be a red flag i think another red flag is if if, if that particular partner uh, has has a reputation in the industry for you know not listening to you uh, or customizing what they're trying to do we always try and reference check people and sometimes we do deals with companies that have a little bit of a checkered reputation or a reputation for being super slow and bureaucratic to deal with for instance you know ac nielsen is a, an iconic company i've spent i don't know how many months trying to partner with nielsen on one or other things and they just move really slowly so it's it might be that there's a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow but it has to be a really big pot in order to deal with the the rate of bureaucracy or or dealing with a bank for instance or you know there's just certain types of partners who are heavily regulated or can't move quickly and sometimes just the speed will kill you just just how many cycles you have to go through you know will you will allocate resources and keep them set aside to work on that and then they they just can't move quickly enough and so you'd be better off prioritizing two or three other smaller partners and getting things done and coming back to them when they have more bandwidth i think part of that is learning that until you're at beyond a certain point you don't necessarily need to allocate resources sometimes you think oh you know let's go ahead and allocate resources but you might think you're on the verge but you're not even close to the actual implementation of the partnership so those are some pieces of advice that i would have obviously i've, I've encountered every, you know all sorts of situations where um there've been partners that are un, i don't know unethical or just they berate somebody on our team or they don't behave in a way that's aligned with our culture and i've called them up and said look we we love your brand and we'd love to promote your brands but this this behavior or this approach isn't isn't how we do business it's just not how we do business so we're not going to do business with you unless that changes and i think standing up for your values in your partnerships is a way of supporting your employees and also ultimately if they're it's like it's like an abusive boyfriend you know if they're if they're that way you're probably not going to change them so you just got to pay attention to how are they treating you are they doing what they said they would do and and make some hard choices sometimes to deprioritize that totally resonates for sure and um you know, in, in our experience, uh, going through a couple of uh, different businesses, I think what we found is is that really having that bi-directional buy-in um, and having uh, that partner be equally as invested, whether they're large or small, has really proven to be the most um, the most successful. So that there's kind of that that mutual trust and, and mutual opportunity. Getting back to um, to COVID and remote working, you've really helped Colorado lead the way um, in in businesses' response and in being part of um, Governor's Task Force on the business world's uh, response over the last eighteen months. Can you share uh, how how you've um, how you've been involved with that and, and almost um, in a bit of a, a hindsight, what are some of the things that you think we in, in the state of Colorado from a business leadership perspective did well and 
what are things that we, uh, you know, we could do better, uh, God forbid, and next time? Yeah, I mean, thanks for saying that. I, I think many people have stepped up in many different ways. We are an employer here. There are many different employers. And I think by and large, our community has, has come together. It's one of the things that's special about Colorado is that it is possible to rally together relatively easily and quickly. There's a lot of personal relationships that make that possible. And people, you know, they're generally pretty collaborative, even though we compete for talent in the labor market. So last March 12th or 13th or so, I woke up one Wednesday and said, I don't think I'm really thinking about this the right way. And it seems like events are moving quickly. The NBA had, had made their announcement. Harvard had sent everybody home from, from college. A few things were happening rapidly. I just come back from New York City and I wrote an email out to about 60 CEOs that I knew in Denver and Boulder and along the front range. And I just said, look, I'm struggling with how to handle this for my company. Could we compare notes? Would anybody like to join a call uh, first thing tomorrow, you know, 9 a.m.? And I got probably 50 out of 60 people on that call just right away, which just tells you how collaborative the community can be when it needs to come together. And we realized that we were all dealing with the same uncertainties and the same problems and that we needed to lead by example and flattening the curve because if we were having people still come into the office, then we could be putting uh, lots of other people at risk because we could be asymptomatically carrying and transmitting the disease. We were also then part of the efforts to put pressure on the city and the state to shut down the ski resorts, shut down uh, the Pepsi Center at the time, and other concert venues were still having you know 20,000 person gatherings uh, the DCPA shut down their their season, and I think that was the right decision. I think had we not done that, more people would have would have suffered and died. Uh, we then had a call every Monday for the next nine months that I organized with a different speaker uh, for half an hour from eight thirty to nine, and learned a lot. I mean, we heard from the governor, we heard from Senator Bennett, we heard from Mayor Hancock on multiple occasions, we heard from the Chancellor of DU, somebody at Lockheed Martin who's dealing with a ten thousand person workforce. We heard from Dr. Herlihy, the state's leading epidemiologist. And so we just really broadened our perspectives as a group. And then we switched to kind of monthly and now kind of quarterly check-ins. We got one coming up this Monday with Dr. Herlihy again. But it's been good because I think it's allowed us to um, demonstrate to our workforces that we have some confidence in our recommended approach and that we have access to people who know more information about, about the state of play. As far as what we did well, uh, I think what we did well was uh was keep it open we, we we didn't say it's only for ceos or you know we expanded it pretty soon there were other business leaders or people outside the state who wanted to join we set up a slack channel which was a place to easily put uh, articles and references and calls to action which i think was helpful um we had cast a pretty broad net in terms of speakers so we could hear from everyone from mike johnston who was helping with the, the vaccination and testing protocols at gary community foundation to uh, KPL Pala, who's working on uh, distributing public health to um, you know, underserved and, and minority communities. Uh, I think that those are things we did well, things that, that we didn't maybe do as well. I think we spent some cycles thinking about building technologies and things that ultimately, you know, whether it's a vaccine passport or a contact tracing apps, that ultimately Americans just weren't going to be willing to use ever. Uh, contact tracing through the phones. You know, we had Google and Android come in and present. It was very interesting, but didn't end up mattering or helping in, in, in preventing the spread of COVID. So hard to know that at the time. I think we were casting a pretty broad net. Um, and I think we did not, 
and I think this is largely right, we did not focus on public policy, signing a bunch of petitions and meaningless petitions being signed in a Google Doc. I think we really focused on much more tactical kind of how are you thinking about a return to work policy? How are you thinking about vaccination requirements, not having them, um, et cetera? And, and spawned a lot of side conversations about how are people negotiating with their buildings? How are they dealing with ventilation? A lot of practical things that, that went well. If I had it to do again, I probably would have diversified the number of people who were organizing the speakers because eventually it just got exhausting to have nine months times four sessions a month. So organizing 36 speakers got a little out of hand for me and it kind of caused a, a step back to more of a quarterly approach. Um, but overall, I think it was a, it was a positive. Have you guys produced any work product from this? I mean, are there white papers? Is there anything that's been like sort of transmitted to the folks outside of that group? Yeah, we wrote a letter uh, as, a, as 50, over 50 CEOs calling for various measures for public authorities to, to take uh, relating to flattening the curve very early on. You can Google it, find it, Colorado CEOs on COVID in late, in late March or second, third week of March. Uh, we also signed a petition relating to the mask mandates. Uh, I got a call from the governor's office saying I need 50 CEO signatures in two hours. We were able to get those signatures added to just lend gravitas to and legitimacy to the, what the state was trying to achieve with, with masks. Uh, we've worked closely on um, decks that, that you know, Dr. Hurley, he has, has, has prepared for our group, which we've then circulated within the group and have been circulated, you know, uh, within various corporate cultures as, as I think a way of updating people. Um, and same thing with, with people who are thinking about um, how to handle benefits, disability, uh, supporting the, the parents who have kids at home, just, you know, Four Winds Interactive, I remember came and gave a presentation on, on how they had done return to work and circulated the presentation, but it's nothing that's really, you know, sort of public policy advocacy per se, other than that initial letter and the, and then the mask support. I appreciate the four wins reference because David's a friend of mine. Uh, I have a guy. question. I have a very quick question for you. And I know Yoshi's got some questions ginned up, but you mentioned like competing for the workforce um, with some of the, you know, some of these other CEOs. Are you seeing, given the pandemic and now a lot of remote workforce, a, a change in what workforce you're competing for? Are they Coloradans? Are they people outside of Colorado? Uh, how are you, you know, building your teams now? Is that is that any different than it was pre-pandemic? It is different. You know, people are are recruiting our people from a wide range of places. Uh, so, for instance, um, Amazon, Facebook, Google, uh, Roblox. These companies are seeing few barriers to hiring employees remotely. We've always been the leading consumer technology company in Denver, and so if you wanted to work on a consumer-facing app. We're the only one in Colorado of any any scale at all. Um, 40 million people have downloaded our app. The next closest is probably a million or half a million. But when that's not limiting, uh, geography isn't limiting and you don't feel strongly about being able to go into an office, all of a sudden the, the, the pool of, of uh, competitors for that talent is, is greatly increased. I think that there's also in turn an opportunity for us to recruit talent outside of Colorado. We just hired a head of product who's based in North Carolina. Um, we've hired many people actually who are out of the state um, and made it work and demonstrated that we can be productive and collaborate uh, with each other uh, remotely. So it's had pushes and pulls. I think in, in broad terms, it's 
very hard to find uh, talent right now. You've got unemployment insurance creating reasons why people stay out of the workforce. You have public health concerns keeping people out of the workforce. Um, you have uh, a lot of crazy offers being put out there from companies starting out engineers at salaries that are double what they would have started out at, you know, five seven years ago. So. Yeah, it is a tight labor market, uh, which is generally great for employees. It's it's tougher for employers. So our listeners know that I'm a rather heavy LinkedIn user and Yosha's too. Brian, I, I see you post on LinkedIn a lot and in particular, congratulating people that are coming or even going from Ibotta, which I think is amazing as a CEO. Are you the one that's actually doing that and seeing that? Or are you is there like a handler behind the scenes that's doing that? No, I have no handler. Uh, what you see is what you get from me on LinkedIn. No one, no one is shadow uh, posting or liking or commenting. No bots. There's no bots. Uh... <laughs> to my knowledge. Do, do you get feedback on it? Because I think it's tremendous. And I tried to convince our sort of, you know, law firms are extraordinarily fluid, especially at the associate level, the comings and the goings. Uh, and I think we would do well to to do what you do in terms of the congratulations and welcome and congratulations and goodbye. Um, and so do you get feedback from that? I mean, do employees talk to you about it? Um, I don't actually, it's good to hear you say that. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of decided to be fairly open about who I am and what I value. I, I try to draw certain lines. You know, there are topics that I don't talk about that don't relate to the values of Ibotta. So for instance, I don't post on what I think about immigration detention policies at the border. I don't post on what I think about global warming. Cause I don't think that belongs on LinkedIn. But if it relates to diversity, inclusivity, for example, I will post on it because I think it's relevant to our work culture and, and want people to see the CEO being outspoken on issues that I care about, whether it is the murder of George Floyd, whether it is how we're thinking about equal pay for equal work and companies that are purposely excluding Colorado applicants because they don't want to comply with the Colorado law, or whether it's the recent decision by Valor Christian to uh, force gay people to resign. I will post on those topics, uh, including on LinkedIn, because those are relevant. And as far as comings and goings, uh, I think it's nice for people to hear from the CEO right when they start and, and know that they're not just a number in a large organization. I also think that uh, it's it's valuable to treat people well on the way out the door if, if they've left on good terms. Uh, and you know, not everybody does, but most people do handle themselves the right way. And you want to be proud of the fact that they can go and be successful somewhere else because of the experience they gained at Ibotta. And you realize that that ends up being uh, really important to the other people that are still at Ibotta to know that that's uh, something that they can look forward to. Uh, I couldn't agree more and and super trite, but true. I mean, leadership sets tone. And if that's the type of ethos that, uh, <clears throat> that, you, that, that you're um, leading with and the organization is going to take on that persona. Um, I got one, one, uh, last question. Um, in in a previous um, interview, we had uh, Joe Thurman of Interview IA, and and as well as Eric Matisek, uh, two folks that you know pretty well. And uh, we were asking them both about uh, similarly. I mean, Eric's been in Colorado for a gazillion years, and and Joe has been um, around the same time as us. What have you seen in terms of the difference uh, in your time uh, in Colorado around kind of the entrepreneurial world, you know, from the beginnings of, you know, being in the garage and sharing a bathroom, with, you know, 400 people to now being so much bigger? 
So many differences. I think uh, when we started out, we were in the very first ever Denver Startup Week, and there were very few companies. The, the pub crawl was kind of five stops, <laughs> and we were one of them in our little fire station. Uh, there were maybe 500 or 1,000 people total participating in Denver Startup Week. Now we have many, many times that number. Uh, there weren't that many venture firms. You know, Now you've got Range, for example, that's come in and done a great job. They didn't exist. Back then, you really had Foundry, Access, GrowTech, not many. Now there's a lot more capital coming to Colorado, both for later stage deals, uh, private equity deals. Uh, people understand that great companies are being built here. And there's many examples of unicorn companies that have uh, sprouted up here in and beyond consumer technology uh, exits like the SendGrid exit, which have been uh, prominent, even though not consumer focused, but very successful. Companies that have gotten acquired like Data Logics, those weren't really happening back then to the same degree. I think we've managed to attract a more diverse workforce, uh, partly because the reputation of the city is has changed from less white, uh, homogenous to a little bit more inclusive and diverse community where it's easier to recruit people here than it was before. Remote work has really helped with recruiting people because their spouse can work wherever they want from here. Um, and because it's beautiful to live here. And if you're gonna be able to work anywhere, you might as well live somewhere beautiful. Some things that have changed for the worse, uh, it's more expensive to live here. It's uh, harder to find a starter home at, at the $250,000 to $400,000 level. It's difficult for employees to live close to the downtown area. There's not much public, um, public um, uh, education downtown. You don't have many daycare facilities in Denver still, uh, which is absurd. And uh, we've still not built public transportation yet. We've added a lot more people to the city. So it's sit in traffic more. Uh, there's there's challenges, I think, and then more to come. But overall, I think the, the community has been a great place to start a business. There's a ton of excellent uh, mentors and advisors and colleagues here who you can turn to when you want to know how to handle something. There's a, a depth of um, professional service providers at the, the KPMGs of the world, at the uh, the, the the great law firms that have come here and set up offices. And so I feel like it's it's um, overall improved, I think. Uh, it's the intangibles. It's the restaurants. It's the fact that Hamilton stops here on their national tour. It's the fact that McKinsey has an office here. I think those things have um, burnished the image of Denver in, in a good way. It used to be that Boulder was really the leading place when we started out. And, and everyone would say, are you tech stars? Or are, you, are you part of Brad's portfolio? Now, you know, the overwhelming majority of venture capital is coming into Denver, not Boulder. Um, you have a ton of um, companies that have regional offices oh, wow. here, moved here like Palantir or Gusto. Um, and so it's really changed the balance of power. And I sort of view them more as one corridor and one community rather than as much as two separate communities. We used to have separate Boulder, Denver tech meetups in a very separate ecosystem. And I feel like that's, that's blurred a bit. All right, Brian, we are getting real close to being out of time. And I want to be respectful of your busy schedules. And I, I know you're a big outdoorsman. Uh, and I always ask some random questions at the end. What's the last 14 or you climbed? The last one I climbed in, in terms of recency, I, I reclimbed Wetterhorn Peak uh, last week with my daughter, uh, which is a fun class three scramble. Uh, I have climbed all 58 of them. The last one I completed of the 58 was San Luis Peak, which is not particularly hard, but it's way far away, six six hour drive. 
away. And then right before that, I completed Capital Peak, but I've probably done 75 summits, you know, 58 unique summits. And I now I'm going back and doing the rest. I'm, I'm doing Mount Yale next week with a buddy who's a Yale grad. We're going to go out okay. and um, keep it have in some fun. So keep. Yeah, Where, right. Have you done any climbing outside of the state? I assume not much travel lately. Yeah, not much lately, although uh, I've been taking up rock climbing. I just did my first multi-pitch thousand foot summit, which was fantastic. I have a great mountain guide who's an excellent professional guide up in Estes Park. And we did Mount Spearhead from bottom to top. And it was pretty exhausting. I mean, it was exhausting and thrilling and, and, and having a thousand feet of exposure all around you and questing up a, a piece of granite like that is, is pretty memorable. Ryan Leach, the classic uh, underachiever. I think that's a new title. But no, it's a true Colorado CEO, right? <laughs> I, I like to push myself and try things that are outside my comfort zone. And when you're on the eighth pitch up, you know, at a thousand feet above the ground and you're hanging in your harness and you're trying to do moves that are at your flash level, it's, it's grippy. I was definitely gripping. That's awesome. Awesome. All right, man. Well, thanks, Brian. Really appreciate your time, Yosh. And I loved having you in here in the podcast. Good luck with uh, Ibotta and we'll see what happens for you guys in the future. Thanks, fellas.